You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we have a special guest on the phone, Josh Plave. Josh is a full-time real estate investor and has a super interesting backstory to how he got involved in real estate. But as a full-time real estate investor, he's involved in a number of different deals, both as a limited partner and a passive investor and also as an active investor. But more importantly, today, Josh is going to give us some inside tips and tricks on how to invest in large commercial properties, but how to do so with the funds that are right beneath our nose that we don't know and probably aren't taking advantage of today. I'm still learning about this way to get involved in this investment style. So I'm super interested to learn. And Josh, I can't wait to hear what you have to teach us on that. But with that, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah, so I was thinking about this and I've got like the commercially available one and the, the best ice cream I've ever had. The good, so good. It, yeah, my the commercial one is Ben Jerry's Fish Food. Classic, I love it. But if you want the best scoop of ice cream you've ever had, there's a place called Mosquito Ice Cream in Maine. It's, it's in Raymond, Maine, I believe. So it's just a place where my friend has a ha- cabin on a house, like a lake, and it was by far the creamiest, best ice cream ever. Was there a particular flavor at Mosquito Ice Cream? Yeah, it was like uh, raspberry or blackberry or something. It's like super fresh ingredients. It was like my mind was blown. So So I want to explore that. Are you a fruit kind of person with your ice cream or do you like traditional chocolate and things like that? I'm sorry, more fruit people. Really? I'm, I'm generally like chocolate. I like marshmallow, which is why I like the fish food thing. But I like when, yeah, those, I really like dark. I'm getting into it now more with the, the yeah. flavors mixed in with like a chocolate. I think it must be an age thing because like my girlfriend made these little lemon meringue pies the other day. Yeah. And normally I'm chocolate all the way. And yeah. I had one of those, which turned into 15, one of those, which turned into the COVID-15 is a real thing. And I need to stop eating them. Uh, So tell our listeners, what's your scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So I, uh, as Matt mentioned, I I operate primarily in commercial real estate, mostly multifamily, and uh, those are just apartment complexes. And so uh, with my partners, we buy and then operate large apartment buildings between 90, about 250 units. And uh, I primarily get at it via my background uh, with retirement funds. And I help educate folks on how they can use their retirement funds. You can readily use the funds you have available from, you know, an employer or, or your own IRA that you up and we'll get over uh, go over that but uh yeah because of my background i ended up getting involved that way figuring out what was the best method and i figured i'd try to help other people with that aim 100 percent. and i know you've been helpful for me so far and i super appreciate that and i'm interested because even though i've heard it once or twice i still need to hear it again but tell our listeners about your background like how did you get involved in the whole retirement account strategy. Yeah. I mean, I'm only 30. So a lot of people wonder why uh, someone who's 30 is talking about retiring, but I actually started when I was 16 years old. I was that summer I had worked as a camp counselor and my mother and my grandfather were CPAs. So they both kind of tried to get me to look towards the future and, you know, just making sure I was setting myself up for success uh, down the line, not just in the present day. So I put the money I'd earned away uh, in a Roth IRA. I figured I should pay the taxes then and then reap the rewards tax-free from then on. Uh, And so I did that 
And then I kept on investing and contributing to that for the next 10, 15 years. It's done well. But what really ultimately led me to real estate was about 10 years after that, my mother and my grandfather, who I'd mentioned, they actually both passed away, unfortunately. Uh, and what that did was it left me with the retirement uh, accounts of a baby boomer and a member of the greatest generation. And so it wasn't a life-changing amount of money, but it was enough that I knew I had to be a good steward of their legacy. I had to preserve everything that they had worked for and figure out what I was going to do with those accounts. And my sisters were in the same boat, so I had to lead them as well. And uh, I needed to make sure I wasn't just going to put it all on the first investment that came across my desk and just possibly blow it up. I really needed to dig down into the information. I had no real estate background, so I fully did a self-taught curriculum. I just sat down, I read you know, books, I listened to podcasts, I did every possible thing I could do for about a year or two. I eventually landed on multifamily. As a result, I also figured out how to do it with your retirement funds. And that's sort of why I ended up building my company wall domain. I am so jealous that you started investing in your Roth 401k or Roth IRA <laughs> at the age of 16. That is crazy. And I wish I would have done that. You can replace the volume. You can never replace the time. So before we dig into the 401ks and the IRAs and the retirement accounts and things like that, why did you decide on multifamily? So there's options, there's owning your own business, there's stocks, there's uh, single family, fix and flip. Now, what drew you to multifamily? Yeah. So I had been doing equities, stocks and bonds, mutual funds for about 15 years. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I still do as well. Uh, it's just, I realized I was getting really worked up about how uh, little control I have over my own investment. Uh, you know, I like to reference Elon Musk, you know, he got on Joe Rogan's podcast once and he lit up a joint and, you know, the test, the rest is history, right? (laughs) It it dropped. I mean, it's been up since then, but something, something, something billion dollars later. (laughs) Right. So, but like as an investor, you have no control over the next scandal that might rock the company that you're investing in. And so I wanted more direct control over my ultimate future, over my investments. And so I started taking a look at real estate. I'd always been drawn towards it. And I mentioned earlier, because I had no background in real estate, the reason that I bring that up is because when I actually went into real estate, I wanted to do so and make sure I was landing feet first in the, the thing I ultimately wanted to do. I originally thought, oh, maybe I'll buy some you know, rental home or I'll flip some homes or I'll, I'll wholesale. There are different approaches that you can take, but ultimately everyone would say on the podcast, on every book, they would say you want to you know, scale up and you got to go from one unit to do to two units, then four, then eight, 16, and work your way up until you have some scale and able to kind of have enough passive income that you're able to kind of do it full-time and then retire. And so they all said, you know, eventually I'd really like to syndicate. Maybe I'd like to do apartment buildings. And so I started taking a look at that and I found my eventual mentor and he he basically broke it to me and said, once you go beyond five doors, the closing process, it becomes a commercial loan. Uh, It's the same as if you do a hundred units, there's just more money involved. And so I realized I wanted to go straight into something that's scaled. I knew from my analytical background, I could approach it from a numbers standpoint, because instead of really buying a property, you're essentially buying the business. It's a commercial property and everything's valued instead of comps of nearby homes. It's valued purely on the NOI of the operations of that business. And I knew that because you could ultimately control the value of your investment, that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. We had Colin on the show uh, last week and he talked a little bit about like, do you want to be an active investor or do you want to be a passive investor? And when you make that decision that you want to be a passive investor and own a piece of the business, 
it's sometimes better for you as an investor not to have Mr. Market knock on your door every day and be like, here's the price of your apartment complex. Here's the price of your apartment complex. Here's the price of your apartment complex, like a stock would if you uh, pulled up Yahoo or Robinhood or things like that. I want to ask a question though. Do you still invest in equities at all? Oh yeah, I definitely do. There are certain accounts and certain you know tax strategies where it makes the most sense. And there's also uh, specific reasons where you, you, know, you, you believe in a certain company or, or the future of a certain product and kind of want to make sure that you write out that investment. Yeah, I think that's a key point and one that I'm going to keep asking investors because I will preach to the high heavens just like you that multifamily is a great asset to invest in. However, it's a strategy, not the strategy. And I think there's a balance between equities and bonds and multifamily, et cetera. So I want to dig in now to the retirement accounts and I want to get super, super basic and kind of just let's walk through it here. First of all, why do retirement accounts even exist? And what is a 401k? Sure. You know, no one's ever asked me why they exist, but I, ultimately it's the government. There's two methods. The government wants to incentivize you to put money away. And it also helps them, you know, build a stronger stock market because there is more money socked away and being put into index funds and driving the market forward. The 401k is the biggest thing that happened in 2020 because everyone's 401k has, you know, ballooned and it's been great for people in America. So second reason is talk about a Roth account in a bit, but with a Roth account, it actually allows them to get the taxes paid up front. So they're able to collect taxes even earlier. With a lot of previous retirement accounts, you would put money away pre-tax and then someday you, they would collect the tax. You know, you'd pay it on distribution. Uh, with a Roth account, they're now incentivizing you to pay the taxes up front because they're really interested in funding their budget today. And so they want more money put into Roth accounts as a result. But oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you answered it 100% aligned with my thinking is that if you look at the way throughout history, there was no pension plans, then there was Social Security, and then the government shifted from Social Security, even though we still have it today, to more incentivizing companies to do pension plans. And uh, companies were like, hey, wait, this is getting really expensive. And there's a guy out there called Ted Bunsen, Benson, something like that, who kind of stumbled upon this loophole of the 401k. And it's incentivizing now the person to go invest in their own retirement. I believe that tax policy is written to incentivize private entities to do what the government doesn't want to do. And the government doesn't want to pay for a growing population to retire on. So they're going to incentivize you to do that. So you mentioned a Roth and traditional before we get into that, like what is a 401k versus an IRA? Yeah. So a 401k is typically sponsored by an employer. And it's a plan where you're allowed to basically put away a ton of money compared to, let's say, an IRA. We'll get into that. But with the 401k, you can put in up to, I think it's $57,000. And if you're over 50, you have up to, I think it's now a $7,000 catch-up contribution. And so it allows you, it's really powerful because you can put in a ton of money towards your retirement. Uh, and so the nice thing is a 401k is generally sponsored by your employer. So because there's a lot of funds under management, you tend to have really low uh, management fees. And so you can really uh, you know invest with a lot of confidence knowing that most of the uh, returns are coming back into your overall account. The problem with a lot of 401ks is there's limited fund availability, what you can actually invest in. So that's tricky. But compared to an IRA, some companies offer them, but it's mostly like a self-sponsored retirement plan. It's a little smaller. Uh, you know, you can only put in up to $6,000 now with a $1,000 catch up if you're over 50. But it's essentially just something that you would do yourself if you didn't have a 401k available to you or if you wanted to put more money away as well. So is that really the kind of the different core difference between 401k and IRA is that a 401k is sponsored by an employer, whether that be you or your 
W-2 job and an IRA is self-sponsored? Generally, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of smaller differences, uh, but overall, the 401k is going to be a better plan where, you know, you can take out like a loan from the 401k and there's more contingencies and more protections for the account owner in a 401k. Uh, But yeah, uh, those are the really the basic high level ones. So which means you still have time to withdraw money from your 401k tax and penalty free for up to three years. So that's an interesting little stipulation in the CARES Act there. So, all right, my employer offers a 401k. I'm now investing in the 401k, but now it's giving me an option of, do I want to do a traditional 401k or a Roth 401k? What is the difference there? Yeah. So the difference between traditional and Roth money, I touched on it earlier, but traditional money is where before you know, it's taken straight from your paycheck. So before you ever have to pay income federal or state level income tax, uh, it goes straight into that account, into that account traditionally. And so what happens is you can then invest however you see fit. Uh, it grows. And then when you want to take distributions, once you're 59 and a half years old, you take those distributions and you pay income tax. So you pay whatever income tax level you are, uh, you're at, at that time. And so they introduced sometime in, I think it was the nineties, the Roth account. It's the same kind of an account, but the money is treated differently. So instead of it coming from your paycheck and then going into the account, it actually comes from your paycheck. It then technically touches you. And so you have to pay the income tax on it. And then it goes into that account. Uh, and so the what they're saying is instead of paying taxes in the back end, you're going to pay them on the front end. And so you pay taxes at your income tax level today. And you're betting that, hey, I'm going to have the tax-free growth while it's in the account. And then when I go to take a distribution at the end, I'm betting that my income tax level at that time is going to be higher than what I'm paying right now. And so you're doing one of two things. You're either betting on yourself that you're going to earn at a higher level when you're older. And two, you're betting that the income tax level is our tax rate, you know, the brackets are going to be higher. And right now we're at historically low income tax rates. So I heavily suggest a Roth account because, you know, we're paying incredibly low taxes historically. Yeah, I'm not a financial advisor and everybody's situation is different and caveat, 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 asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. But the more I look at it, the Roth is a super powerful tool because historically taxes have always been higher. And I like to think that it's okay to pay the tax now and know that you don't have that big lump of money that you got to pay on in the future versus who knows. I listened to somebody the other day that said, if I were to give you a bank loan and I said, here's your money, but I'm not going to tell you how much, when, or how much I'm going to overcharge you in interest fees in the future on it, you'd be like, that's a terrible deal. That's essentially what a traditional uh, account is versus a Roth. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of it goes into kind of estate planning. So if you plan on on passing off these accounts, you know, for example, my mother, who I mentioned, she passed on a traditional IRA to me. And so when I take away from it, I have to take distributions and then pay income tax on it. If uh, she had passed on a Roth IRA, I'd have had that stepped up basis. I would not have to worry about any kind of taxes. So I would just take distributions as if they were brokerage account. I wouldn't have to worry at all about paying taxes. So yeah. it's a very effective uh, generational wealth building tool. Yeah, I think we're both on the same page where if you want to pay tax on the seed or what the harvest of that seed is, just pay it on the seed and get it over with, bite the bullet in most situations. So, all right. So I have a 401k and you're telling me I can invest this money. Can I take my employer sponsored 401k and invest it into real estate? 
I'm going to go with no, but uh, so most likely you can't if you're currently with the employer that has like the largest account that you're considering using. This is basically because the uh, the employer and the custodian that holds it, they want to hold those funds under management to drive lower costs uh, and just have more more funds available to them. Uh, You can do what's called an in-service rollover if your company allows for it most don't, uh, but it's worth taking a look at and seeing if uh, your company allows for it. But technically, most often you need to have uh, you know control over it. it. Needs to be from a past employer, something that maybe is still with that plan, but you're no longer at that employer, or you've moved it from a 401k and then rolled it back into a, a Roth or sorry, an IRA that you yourself uh, hold. Okay, so what about like a loan? You mentioned a loan earlier. Could I take a loan from my 401k and invest it in real estate? You could. I would generally suggest against it. Uh, it depends on really what you're investing in. If it's a really short time horizon plan and you know that you can pay back, you can do that because the 401k loan, it's a three-year deal and it has to be paid back within three years uh, and you have to pay it back at an interest rate that's kind of matches the, the current LIBOR rate. Uh, and so if you put it into something like multifamily and it's a fairly illiquid investment, typical hold times are five to six years. And so if you put it in that kind of, uh, you know, stuck in, in, in that investment and not necessarily going to be able to pay back that loan. If you are a high income earner though, and you think that, hey, I'll probably earn that up to maybe a hundred thousand dollars back in time, you can certainly do that because you'll be able to pay back the loan over time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So in most situations, I can't take my 401k and do it, but I do an in-service distribution and rollover, or I leave that job and I roll it into an IRA, how can I start leveraging, or I have an IRA or Roth IRA outside of my traditional 401k, meaning I've just been shoving money in there throughout the process. How can I use those funds to go uh, invest in real estate? Yeah. So basically any kind of retirement account, whether it's the 401k, IRA, there's 403bs from government employees, thrift saving plans for military, all of these plans, any retirement plan can actually invest in anything beyond uh, you know, stocks, bonds, equity, stuff like that. You can actually invest in anything that you see as a good investment. There's three stipulations. You just can't invest in uh, collectibles like art, jewelry, or cars. Uh, you can't invest in shares of an S corporation, and then you can't buy life insurance policies with it. That's it. Beyond that, you're able to put it into virtually anything. So you can do real estate, you can do cryptocurrency, gold, all these kinds of things. So I want to highlight that point because a lot of people I talk to don't understand that. What you just said is that if you have retirement funds outside of your company's 401k, so in an IRA or Roth IRA or 403b or TSP or something like that, you can take those funds and direct them yourself into real estate whether it be fix and flip or buy and hold or anything, passive investment into commercial buildings, et cetera. Yeah. When they built these retirement plans, they only stipulated what you couldn't do. Now, most of these plans are held at custodians that they set up their brokerage houses specifically for the stock market. Uh, So that's what we're familiar with. But the only stipulation is what you can't do. And so those three things are the only things you can't do. Beyond that, I mean, you could buy racehorses, you can do anything you want. I've heard some crazy stuff. So yeah. Is Bitcoin considered a collectible? Uh, It is not. No, cryptocurrency is a big thing for people to put in like their Roth accounts, because if they think it's going to balloon wildly, never pay taxes on it, go for it. That's interesting. If you got that knowledge, I, I definitely don't have that knowledge, but if you no, got that neither. knowledge. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when we met, you talked through a number of different options, like whether it be a self-directed, a checkbook access, a, a solo 401k and all that. I want to start with an IRA. Okay. So I've got my 401k. I leave my job. I roll it into an IRA. 
How can I use those funds in a self-directed IRA? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, to stick with the theme, there are two flavors to an IRA, to a self-directed IRA. So there is the custodian account, and then there is the checkbook control account. And the checkbook control account builds on the custodian account. So a custodian account is just moving it, like most of us all have our money at Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard or whatever. And you're just moving it to a custodian that is going to actually allow for alternative assets. And so it's it's the same thing. It's just a smaller company. Would Fidelity count as a custodian in that situation? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're just, they're just set up just for the stock market uh, or anything like that. So you need to move it to a custodian who offers access to other, you know, investments. And so what are a couple of those just out of curiosity? Uh, Let's see. There's, there's Kingdom Trust. There's Quest. Yeah. Quest Advanta. Yep. If you Google self-directed IRA, you'll find a bunch. Yes. And if you Google them, you'll tend to see a lot of ads at the top. And I would scroll past those ads. Yeah. Because anybody who's, there's a lot of money in the custodian space, a lot of advertising revenue. And uh, you're going to see a lot of the big names who are charging big big fees. And this is as an investor, because I came at it from an investor standpoint. A lot of the education comes from custodians in this space because they want to sell you a product. And so they're generally uh, helping you to open an account with them. And then they charge you really huge fees. They're actually not fiduciaries. They're not out to look out for your best financial interest, uh, which is why I like to kind of build onto it with checkbook control. So checkbook control is you you always need to move it into a custodian. So that's going to be the first step. But at the same time, there are some custodians who either offer this service or there are outside companies who will do this for you. After they've opened the custodian account, they're also going to open up uh, an LLC for you. And so the, the custodial account is actually going to invest 100% of the funds into the LLC. It'll be the only direct investment that the custodian account makes. And then the LLC, you can open up a checking account just as you would for really any other business. Uh, and that way you are actually paying lower fees. So you're not, a checkbook account is generally not going to be in the hundreds and hundreds of dollars uh, per year you're looking at maybe 150 to 180 dollars a year just to operate it so all of your returns no matter how big the account's getting end up back in your account and then from there you can also just operate it like another business expenses and income flow directly into that LLC and then you're able to I mean I like the joke you get to you can find a deal at breakfast and fund it by lunch you're really just dealing with wires once you learn all the stipulations of what you can and can't do which is something you need to figure out first once you have that you can operate it just as you would any other business it's just as it would be liquid cash. Yeah. I, I've eaten a couple of cookies today, so I've got sugar brain, but I just want to kind of repeat that back to make sure I got it. So you've left your job, you roll your 401k into an IRA, you roll that IRA into a custodian account. Mm-hmm. And then that custodian account, if you do some good searching around, you'll find custodian accounts out there that will have checkbook access. Then they will open up an LLC and that you can use that LLC to invest in a multifamily property, into a single family property, into a fix and flip or whatever. And when you wire the funds, it's really coming from that LLC. So you don't touch the funds. The custodian is sending, is investing in the LLC that's investing in the property. Is that right? Exactly. That's spot on. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to go through checkbook access and uh, the custodian fees. So if I don't have checkbook access, like why is that bad? Because it, it took me a while to really figure this out and kind of see this. And I, I just want to make sure everybody understands the key point of why checkbook access control makes sense. So like if I don't have checkbook access, like why would that be bad? Okay. So with a custodian, they're going to hold your funds right there and they're going to charge you kind of one of two ways. So you're going to basically be charged on the per 
per uh, investment level. So let's say every, like a, if you have four or five investments, they're going to charge you $200 a year for each investment. And so the more times you invest, like if you want to diversify on a low level, let's say you just want to put in a minimum investment, which is typically about $50,000. Let's say you've got $200,000 and you go, Hey, you know what? I'd rather reach multiple markets. I don't want to be, you know, just in Atlanta. I want to be across the entire Southeast or whatever, whatever your plan is. If you decide to diversify on a lower level, you're now in four deals and you have to pay four different asset holding fees. Alternatively, you can pay on the overall valuation of the account. Now, they're not actually directly holding the money because it's off at you know the property or whatever, but they have a, you know, they're recording how much your account is worth. And as your account, theoretically, you're doing a great job here, right? You're a smart investor. You're looking for investments that are going to be really powerful and grow your future. As your account balance grows, your fees start to go along with it. They look, go in lockstep with it. And so the fees start to creep up and up and up. And so you're in a position where, yeah, it's great that you're going to do better, but they're taking out a larger and larger chunk of what's coming back to the account. And so so I like to go with checkbook control because you're really just paying a monthly fee or a, an annual fee, a very fixed rate. And then you're from there, every time you want to do a deal, it's only uh, you know a small wire fee. But operationally beyond that, there's one other thing I want to mention because with a custodian account, you actually have to get permission. Uh, you have to go over paperwork with, you know, if you decide to invest in a property, you have to get it approved. And that approval process, some of them do it quickly, but as an operator, I've actually found that Sometimes it can take up to three or four weeks and people almost get, you know, priced out. They, they don't have the ability to get into an investment because it's just sitting on someone's desk and no one's processing that paperwork. And so with a checkbook account, as I mentioned, it's just a wire. Like you just, it's two seconds. Yeah. So two key points there with a custodian account versus a checkbook. So if there's no checkbook account, one, you have to get permission from the custodian. So there's some paperwork involved. And two, the custodian is going to charge you not only based off of the assets they manage and the investments that you make, but each time you need to ping them to get dollars into that investment. So I've heard of things down to nickeling and diming. If I send out an electrician to look at a single family home, then I need to pay that electrician. I ping the custodian. The custodian charges me a fee to pay the electrician. So checkbook access control is very, very key there. I want to change gears now on, so that's if we have an IRA, but we talked about an IRA, you can only really put $6,000 in a year, but a 401k, you can put up to $57,000 a year. How, if I'm a self-employed person or non-self-employed person, could I access a solo 401k? Can you talk to us a little bit about what a solo 401k is? Yeah. So the solo 401k, in my opinion, is the holy grail of retirement accounts. And so it's a way for you to be the employer. So employers can sponsor 401ks. Why can't you? So if you are either self-employed or you want to generate self-employment income, you can open up a solo 401k. And now the nice thing about generating that solo or generating that self-employment income, there isn't actually technically a level that you have to achieve. I would highly suggest you not try to achieve it at a $1 income level. Uh, there's probably some red flag that the IRS has, but if you can go out and uh, let's say sell things on Etsy or you do a yard sale every year and you bring in four or $500, you can actually sponsor a solo 401k that way. And so you can actually move over old 401k dollars. You can move over traditional IRA money. 
Unfortunately, Roth IRA money can't go into a solo 401k, but that way you can open up a solo 401k. And if you do have a self-employment business, if you have self-employment income, you can actually put in those larger contribution amounts as well as roll those things over. And the reason I call it a holy grail and why you'd want to go to the effort of sponsoring a solo 401k is because it actually retains 100% tax-free status, which we can't say the same about the IRA. So we can get into that, but it's it's really the most powerful possible vehicle for expanding your overall retirement. Okay. So there's probably some people out there that are listening that lost their job one reason or another and decided to get into house flipping. They go out there, they buy a house. It's a bang up deal. They are able to flip it for $100,000. So they can open up a solo 401k because they were able to sell something and make self-employment income that year. How much of that 100k, just this example, just this one house, they did it. That's the only thing they did all year. They got 100k. How much of that could they put into a solo 401k? Uh, So it's, there's, I'd have to sit down with the numbers, to be honest, because uh, it's it's kind of a, it's a, there's two different ways you can contribute into a solo 401k and they're kind of based off of how much you ended up making. So out of that, you're probably looking at, you could probably put in up to close to 56 or 57 or whatever it's you can put in. If it's a hundred thousand dollars of gain, you can probably do that. Gotcha. Yeah. I thought there was something around it where like it was 25% of every dollar up to 250 or something like that. That gets you to the 50. Right. So the point I'm trying to make is you can't go out there and flip a house for $20,000 and just shove $20,000 into it. It's a No, it's not a one for one. There's a certain level where you can eventually get the full 57 in. Uh, you have to be a high income earner to, to get the full 57 in for sure. Yep. Yep. Because that was advised to me the other day. Like you can't just go flip baseball cards and put all of it in there. So I open it up in year one. I think the point to your Etsy is you always have to be making self-employment income to keep that solo 401k open. So what your point I think there was, if you flip one house one year and you shove in a bunch of money into your solo 401k, next year, you have to make self-employment income to keep that open. And so I think what Josh was saying to everybody out there is like, you can flip furniture, you can flip baseball cards, you can have a craft sale, you can sell a couple of things on Etsy, just enough income to show that you are still generating income and you can keep all the benefits of a solo 401k. Yeah, because if you lose the eligibility, you need to move it back into an IRA. And yep. I mentioned this is one of the biggest gotchas is if you take, let's say, a Roth 401k. And then you, from like a past employer, if you move it into a Roth solo 401k, right, and you start sponsoring that solo 401k, and then you lose eligibility, you need to then move it in the next year into a Roth IRA. If you remember, I said Roth IRAs can't go into solo 401ks. So once you lose that eligibility, if you had any Roth money in there, it is not able to go back into a solo 401k ever again. It's stuck in a Roth IRA and you have to go into a self-directed IRA. Now, we just went through this whole tangent about how checkbook access was the greatest thing in the world. Can you have checkbook access to your solo 401k? Yep, pretty much. Uh, it's very easy, automatic. The uh, account itself actually doesn't need to have an LLC. It's even simpler. It just has its own brokerage uh, account and you just operate from there. Gotcha. Now, the only downside I've heard besides the keeping self-employment income coming and making sure you don't lose eligibility is that with a solo 401k, anything you offer to the company, being you in this situation, has to be offered to all employees. So it was something around like you couldn't scale to add different employers, et cetera. Is that, can you help us understand that? It's tricky. There's a kind of like a really fine line for who who can actually open a solo 401k. And if you've got your own business, let's say you're running a pizza parlor, you probably can't open a solo 401k um, because you can't have any full-time employees. You can't even have any part-time employees now. They started it this year. 
part-time employees that work over 500 hours uh, a year. You can't bring them into the, or you can't up sponsor a solo 401k with that. So uh, it's pretty restrictive, unfortunately. So it's something that is available mainly to, we like to use it with W2 income earners uh, who can sponsor some self-employment on the side with some consulting or whatever. But uh, if you have your own business, it, it is a little tricky if it's it's bigger than just a solo entrepreneurship. Yep. Yep. So if you're out there and you're working a W2 and you have a 401k at work, you could still have a solo 401k yep, separate. Absolutely for your side income and take some of that money and invest it in. You just can't have employees that are on the payroll for that company. Right. Gotcha. All right. Now I want to talk about investments. So we're, we're going into, and we're going to invest into real estate. Help us understand this, this idea of a qualified person. Like what is a qualified person who counts as a qualified person? And why do I even need to know what a qualified person is? Yeah. So what's really important when it comes to uh, investing with your retirement accounts is making sure that you're not going to do something that's disqualified and blow up the account. And so one of the issues is disqualified people. And so you need to make sure you're investing only with qualified. And so a disqualified person, the first one I like to point out is you, it's yourself. You can't actually benefit from your retirement account. Your retirement account, account. retirement account can't benefit directly from you. Uh, so like if you plan to, let's say, buy a single family home with your retirement account and you're just paying all cash uh, and you want to rent it, you can't do that, unfortunately, because you could either give yourself a favorable rent and only rent it out for $100. So now you're living for free. Uh, or you could then give yourself a phenomenal rent and you could pay $10,000 a month and start to funnel more money away into your, your retirement account. So that's prohibited. You know, you can't have any interaction between the two. And you can't even like if you're flipping a house with your retirement account, you can't go in and swing a hand or you can't sweep a, a broom. Uh, that's considered sweat equity and your retirement account is benefiting from your actions. So that makes you a disqualified person. Uh, other people you can't actually use your retirement account to invest with uh, include any linear ascendants or descendants. So that's going to be people like your parents and your grandparents, your children and your grandchildren, and then also spouses at any level, unfortunately. So you can't invest, let's say you wanted to buy a single family home, uh, you can't invest with your, your husband or wife with your retirement account and both come into that opportunity. Luckily though, your brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, and cousins, they're all okay. Anyone kind of off to the side is perfectly fine, but it ends up being sort of restrictive. And so there's a nice little trick I like to bring in here when, you know, I like to think of your retirement account, like it's a different person entirely because you can't really invest with it. So you need to think of them as two separate people. Uh, that same thing goes for your disqualified people. And so let's say you want to invest with your spouse in something. Well, you can actually both use your retirement accounts together because that retirement account for them them is not a disqualified person. It ends up being qualified. And so this is what I do with my family. We actually have a holding company. We've combined all of our retirement accounts into it. And that way we can leverage all of our retirement dollars together at once. And we can kind of get into, as I mentioned, into smaller opportunities. So like if, if an investment minimum, let's say is 75,000 and I can invest with both of my, my sisters, uh, that's $25,000 each. I can now be into more deals on a lower level across the board and divert, uh, diversify my portfolio overall. So getting around these kinds of things is possible, uh, not in fully in its entirety. There are still restrictions, but it's important to know those restrictions before you get started. Yeah, this is why Josh is so important to me. Thank you for this. But also our listeners is because some of those things around, I can't invest in my spouse's or my parents' uh, 
directly, but I can invest into their 401k that is invested or their LLC that is invested in that because it's a different person. So that's still a bit tricky to me. I'm still kind of learning that, but I did meet someone the other day that basically said, yeah, what they do is they have their solo 401k invest in their brother's LLC that invest in property and like they lent them the money or something like that. So I'm still a little bit tricked out on that. And that's why I'm, I'm super glad you're here to help us understand that a little bit more. Definitely. So the last thing I kind of want to touch on is UBIT. I, when you brought this up for the first time, I had no idea. I'd never heard of it. So let's start with what is UBIT? Yeah. So there's really, there's two concepts behind this. And so it starts when you're talking about investment that is leveraged. So the nice thing that you can do actually is you can apply leverage in your IRA or your 401k. We're going to ignore the solo 401k right now because it actually doesn't apply to this. You know, they are exempt from any kind of taxes. And so UBIT is a tax. And so this happens when you're investing in, let's say, multifamily. And so that's going to be a leveraged asset. So when you invest in a leveraged asset, let's say we're bringing in 25% equity into an investment. The 25% is your down payment. 25% equity, 75% leverage. And so you're going to have uh, any kind of income that is generated by that equity, that's going to be generated by your hard-earned IRA dollars. And so they're putting forth the effort to spin off income. And so you never get taxed on that portion of things. But the 75% leverage, you're bringing in outside dollars from a bank that is it's not tax deferred. It's not retirement dollars. Those are just today dollars that are actually benefiting. Your retirement dollars are going to be benefiting from that. And so you have to pay tax on anything that comes from outside dollars. So you're paying tax on about 75% of the income that's brought in uh, to that property. Now, the nice thing is because this is outside dollars that aren't retirement dollars, you can actually make use of the depreciation and the expenses for that share of things. And so in the first year, while you have to pay, let's say 75%, the taxes on 75% of the income, you can actually use 75% of depreciation, interest expenses, operating expenses, things like that. It really helps to offset UBIT. And so what I ended up doing, because no one really gave me a straight answer, is I built a UBIT calculator. And this really helped me understand the overall impact. Uh, it's The nice thing is with the offsetting, you can actually keep UBIT pretty low in the first three, four or five years, whether it's, it's $0, maybe it's sometimes a couple hundred bucks. It's not a ton of money. It leaves uh, most of the returns in your actual account. You end up paying the full UBIT tax when you have capital gains at the time of a sale or a refi above your original investment amount. Uh, that's when you're going to have to pay a larger overall tax. And so it's something you should look out for. Yeah, I'll just kind of summarize it with just because we're in these tax advantaged vehicles doesn't mean we're completely in the free. There still is a gotcha out there. And I think you're downplaying yourself because you built the world's first UBIT calculator out that <laughs> on, there on wall to main, wallstreettomainstreet.com. And it's a phenomenal tool that really, I haven't really fully understood what it is yet and how to leverage it, but it kind of helped me conceptualize this extra tax out there. So uh, I think you're downplaying yourself. You built the first world's first UBIT calculator out there. If you want to understand the concept better, go check that out. I'm going to switch into our last little round here. We've got the five same questions that we ask everyone. The first one is, what is your favorite book? Yes, my favorite book kind of when it comes, I like to answer it when it comes to multifamily, just to keep it topical. If you want to understand how multifamily works and you're not worried about the, the syndicate, 
communication side or the, the structuring side. You just want to know how the operations work and how you can actually force appreciation. That book is called Multifamily Millions by Dave Lindahl. I consider it to be like the Bible of just understanding how they flat work. You're the first person to say that, but I have heard that dozens and dozens of times as a phenomenal book. So oh, yeah. glad you brought That's that good. up. I believe that you are a creature of your own habits and that the person you want to be in the future should be the person that you're living through today. What is something that you do every single day? So I try to do it every single day, but I meditate. It generally, it just, you know, I always thought it'd be something a little weird, but it's just a moment. I'm literally just focusing on one thing, which is my breath. And uh, that really is able to, it allows me to be recharged for the day. I do it in the morning and it, it just kind of opens me up to really wanting to start my day off on, on the right foot. Do you ever journal right after that? Yeah, I do. I actually started doing, I switched from journaling. I have this planner. It's asked me a lot of questions of kind of, how I want to, it's a meaningful way to start the day, how I want to actually plan out my day and, and tasks and goals that I want to go accomplish. And then I do at night, I reevaluate. I want to nerd out on that after this, because that's yeah. something that I always heard people talk about, like meditating and journaling. And I read Ray Dalio and he talked about trans uh, dental meditation being like the yeah. one thing that changed his, the trajectory of his life. So I really started doing that uh, during 2020 and it is a game changer. I mean, it seems... Yeah fluffy and like too right. touchy feely, but I'm telling you it is a game changer. And there's a reason why everybody is out there evangelizing it. Yeah. I, I didn't get into it or think about getting into it until I got into real estate and then everybody in real estate does it. And everyone yep. in real estate advocates for it because it's just the right way to start off your day. It's great. Yep. And in the journaling part, the only thing I would say is the best way I heard it phrased is your brain is meant for processing, not for storing things. And whenever you yes. think of a thought and you don't immediately write it down, what you're subconsciously doing is storing it, which takes up mental space, which takes up your ability to process and make key decisions. So that's um, a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to nerd out on that at some point. All right. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So the best piece of advice in terms of like what uh, helped me build my business and become an operator here is it was like focusing on one specific thing. So I like to really passionate about whatever I'm learning at the time and block out everything else. So I'm just going to focus on the one project I have or the business I'm trying to start or whatever, because if I'm trying to kind of be a jack of all trades and I'm giving 10% across 10 different items, it's going to take a long time for me to rush and also you know, fully achieve every goal and objective I'm trying to do across them. If I am focusing on one specific thing, I can target, I can envelop myself, I can educate fully. And then once I'm done with that, I'm not going to lose it ever. I can move to the next thing and just target the next item and all, and start to build from there and snowball, and snowball, and snowball. Yeah. You've read the book, The One Thing, right? I actually haven't. No. <laughs> I need it talks to about that. that a lot, Gary Keller. It's a pretty good book, but Brandon Turner on the Bigger Pockets podcast talks a lot about that. He's like, imagine you're building a bridge from an island to mainland. You're not going to get halfway through the bridge and start building another one. It's better just to build the bridge over. And I'm a traditional millennial and I like to spend too many plates. So that's definitely yeah. something I want to get better at as we enter 2021 here. What's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Uh, so the thing I'm most proud of, I would say, because I don't have kids and family yet, I, I'm proud of my, I have a pilot's license. Uh, so I learned to fly when I was 18. I actually haven't flown in a few years, fortunately, but I love that. I can't wait to jump back in at some point. It's the most freedom. And it also taught me so much about my own self. Dude, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's definitely on my horizon at some point in my life. I don't know when, but that's definitely something I want to achieve. Last thing, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with any 
anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Uh, you know, I'm going to go sappy. I'm just going with my mom because she was obsessed with ice cream. When she passed away, the, all the photos we shared of her were her eating ice cream because that was like her number one favorite activity. So I'll just pull that one out because it's something that she, uh, I love Ben and Jerry's because of it. She always took us to the, uh, the Ben and Jerry factory in Vermont. So I've been there and yeah, that's fun. A, wom- a woman after my own heart. Yeah. I love it. Well, I know she's looking down and is very, very proud of you. I mean, not only have you been out there and and pushing yourself and growing as a person, but also you're using her legacy to go achieve your goals. And that's, I think, what we all want as parents is to see our kids do better than us and knowing that we have that push. So that's amazing to hear that answer. Josh, fantastic interview. I've learned a ton. Helped giving me some clarity on a lot of things. If our listeners wanted to find out more about you or learn more about what you do, where would be the best place we could send them? Yeah. Uh, if you head to wall2main.com, I originally built it as kind of an educational platform and it's just got a ton of videos on how to passively invest, but also how to use your retirement account. I'm also offering a free PDF. It's the top 10 tips and tricks when investing with your retirement account in multifamily. And so it just kind of details all the little things you need to look out for, ways to get around things and really maximize your account. Just because your wife's not here, where can they text to get that PDF? <laughs> Gosh, uh, I think it's top 10 to 66866. Six six eight eight uh, six. We'll put it in the show notes there. But yeah, I'll, I'll text. I met Josh. For those of you that aren't, his wife was giving him the nudge to to make sure he was on the slide and ended on the slide on that. So yep. Josh, really appreciate it. Phenomenal. I love that the first time we got a chance to talk, you mentioned that you you didn't even sell a service or that you really were just giving back to the community because you learned so much about it. And that once you ride the elevator up, you need to send it back down for the other people. So I'm overly appreciative that you've given me some guidance and knowledge on this topic, but also for our listeners. So thank you so much and uh, look forward to having you back on soon. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. All right. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.